So yeah, I'm going to take us on a detour, and we're going to go to actually what would be considered the Proverbs of the New Testament. And Jake already shared with us, what book is the Proverbs of the New Testament? It is James. He is the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, when you read James, it really sounds like the Proverbs. It's written in the very same way. And so we're going to actually go to James chapter 3 tonight, and if you turn your Bibles there, that's going to be where our main passage is found. And, but we are not going to neglect the Proverbs tonight because when we get to our application at the end, I'm going to take you to a whole slew of Proverbs that we can use to kind of put an exclamation point on what James is teaching us tonight. So the date was October 8th, 1871. And it was a tragic day uh, for the city of Chicago. The Great Chicago Fire burned through three and a half square miles of the city, destroying more than 17,400 buildings and killing between 250 and 300 people and leaving another 100,000 people homeless. The fire destroyed more than $200 million worth of uh, property. And that would be equivalent to like $5.2 billion in 2024. And because of the size of the city, because of its popularity, because of its access to quick communication, the news of the Chicago fire became national news very quickly. And unknown, though, to many people was that another even more devastating fire burned on the exact same date, just 250 miles north in the little town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, and the surrounding area. Um, the conditions were perfect for a disaster that day in Wisconsin. Peshtigo was a growing lumber town. It's right near, like pretty near Green Bay, Wisconsin. And it was an industry of about, a uh, community of about 1,200 people lived in Peshtigo. People were moving to the area to join the lumber trade. People, a lot of them were immigrants. People were moving north to build homes in the uh, northern woods. And the lumber practices of that period created something called slash. And these were piles of felled trees, branches, sawdust from the sawmills, and these piles were kind of left surrounding the area. And not only that, but the Midwest was struck with an immense drought in 1871. The last real drenching rainfall that this area had had been three months earlier in July 8th. And not only that, but the drastic temperature changes created extremely strong winds. So you can see what this is building up to. The winds quickly fanned any small flames that were around into an immense fire that was three miles wide, a half a mile high, and it spread quickly through the town and beyond. The fire burned at an estimated 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which ended up creating its own weather system. And something like a tornadic fire, pillar of fire was created, what we would call a firestorm, which raced through the town of Peshtigo at over 100 miles per hour. And 
Outrunning an inferno like this was impossible. Many of the people tried to jump into the very cold October Peshtigo River. Other people jumped into their wells as this wall of flame rushed over them. And the, many, many of the residents of Peshtigo lost their lives that day. And actually, with the surrounding area, they say up to 2,400 people lost their lives. It was more than any forest fire in the United States up to that date or since. Over half the population of Peshtigo perished in the fire. Many people were not even recognizable, and they actually did not find many people after the fire. And by the time the cold and the rain had quenched the fire, it claimed close to 2,000 square miles of land and property. And you can see the area that was affected. You see the firestorm that would have approached Peshtigo in that area. And if you look at these next maps, the entire Peshtigo was basically wiped off the map of the earth. Um, this is kind of what the town looked like before and then afterwards where almost everything was decimated and there was nothing left. And because it was not a popular big named city like Chicago, very, very few people knew about this. But I, we can learn something both from this incident and the Chicago fire. And we learn that fire is dangerous and it can be extremely unpredictable. It starts as a small flame and it can quickly go out of control and leave nothing but devastation in its wake. And this is how James describes our tongue in our passage for today. He describes our tongue as a fire. And so, if we take our Bibles and go to James chapter 3, I'm going to read our entire passage, which is going to be verses 1 through 12, and then we'll start picking apart what James wants us to learn from this passage. So, here we go, James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also is the tongue. It is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, it is full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring 
pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt bond yield fresh water. Now, as I looked at this, and I read verse 1, and it's talking to teachers, and how teachers uh, bear a much more serious responsibility and are held much more accountable. And it doesn't seem to fit the whole theme of the tongue, but in a way it does. And I left it in there because it reminds me of something that anytime I teach, anytime anybody teaches, that we need to be aware of. Number one, we never, ever should take God's word flippantly. That I need to do my due diligence in studying the word so that when I share something, it's what God wants me to share, not what I want to share. And it reminds me of something else. And this is important. And I had to remind myself when I prepared this lesson for tonight that I first need to preach this to me. I need to look in the mirror. And I need to say, how do I need to apply this passage to myself? Because how can I expect you to listen? How can I expect you to apply any of this if I haven't done it for myself? And I think James is doing something very wise here. He's setting himself up in that very same place that he's saying, I, this is for me. And I am talking about myself first. And so this New Testament proverb that James, share, James shares with us, it's all about the tongue and the power that it has in our lives. And the first thing he tells us is that we all stumble. And I find this an encouraging statement, <laughs> which seems weird, uh, but I also find it very frustrating. Here's why I find this encouraging, because we often hear the apostles, the great apostles sharing that they struggle as well. And I find encouragement from this because that means that the very battle, the things I'm battling and fighting with, they also struggled with as well. They weren't like these great men that never did wrong. Think about Paul. We might call him the super apostle, right? And in Romans 7, he says, I often find myself doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. And he says, I often am not doing what I should be doing. And so I find encouragement in that. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so James is saying that if anyone doesn't stumble, if anyone doesn't sin, then they're perfect and they're able to actually bridle and control all of who they are. But what does he say? He, he says, we all stumble. We all fail in many ways. And therefore, we are not perfect and we are not able to bridle all of who we are. And that's the part that's frustrating because if you have put your faith in Christ, you're a Christ follower and your desire is holiness and you're pursuing holiness in your life, to realize that we still stumble in many ways is a very frustrating thing. So James actually starts working out a few analogies here, some cause and effect analogies to start setting up this argument that he's making about the things that we allow to come out of our mouths. Um, and he starts soft. And then he kind of goes hard on this. And so he's going to start soft and he's going to go hard. The first analogy is that of a horse. He already used the word bridle in verse 2 to speak of what a perfect man or woman can do with their bodies if they are perfect. 
And it's a Greek word. My Greek is really bad. So if you're a Greek scholar, please forgive me. It's kalanegogeo is the Greek word for bridle. But here's what it means. It means to hold in check. When you bridle something, you hold it in check. And think about that's what happens when a horse has a bit in its mouth with the bridle and the rider is able to control the entire horse by just small tensions on either side of that bit. Um, and so the rider is in control of the whole horse by what he does. And then the second analogy that he picks up on is an extremely huge ship that has a very small rudder. And the pilot is able to turn the ship by just turning that rudder a little bit, even in the strongest of the winds, and he can make the ship go where he would like it to go. Now, I actually did some nerdy research on how a rudder actually turns a ship. And you would think it'd be simple. He turns the wheel, the rudder goes like this, the ship turns. You would not believe actually how complicated this process is. I really didn't understand all of it. I'm actually, Anna, if you could put that picture on the screen right now and just leave it up there. Uh, this is what happens. Let me try to explain to you. So the rudder doesn't actually turn the boat, okay? The rudder, when it is turned, the force of water on the rudder first causes the boat to drift, kind of like think about the movie Tokyo Drift, right? Cars just like, woo! And it rotates on its center of gravity, and it results in the inertia force of resisting water upon the boat, on the hull, which is greater at the bow than it is on the stern to actually push the bow in the direction that the, boat, that the pilot wants the boat to go. All right, so that was actually a pretty abridged version of like what's actually happening when a boat turns. Um, I don't know if you can make bow or stern out of that. Get it? Heads or tails? All right, that was my dad joke moment for the night. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for the one applause on that one. But <laughs> the point being that something so small can have so much control, right? The point James is making that both the bit and the rudder is so small but it has control over something so big. But here's the question. Is it the bit that is controlling the horse, and is it the rudder that is controlling the ship? And the answer to that would be no. There's a rider that is controlling the bit that is controlling the horse, and there's a pilot that is controlling the rudder that controls the ship. And so this is the question I want us to keep in mind as we are digging further into what James tells us about the tongue. And is that, is there a source of control for our tongues? Is there an actual source of control for our tongues? Or is our tongue just doing what it wants to do on its own? All right. Um, and when we look back at verse 5, it tells us that the tongue is a small member. It's very small but yet it can boast of great things. I'm sure you have heard this phrase, that the pen is mightier than the sword, right? And in this case, words. Words are mightier than the sword. Let me give you another uh, illustration here of actually how powerful uh, the tongue can be and how actually devastating the tongue can be. I'm kind of in the 1800s right now. I love that era. So I'm going to take us back to 1899 now, right at the turn of the century. And there are four newspaper men. One's name is Al Stevens, Jack Tornay, 
John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire. And they are each reporters for different newspapers in Denver, Colorado. And they, all four of them found themselves at the train station one Saturday night in Denver, and they're looking for some scoop so that they could have a good story for the next day's paper in Denver. And they're hoping maybe a celebrity will get off the train and we can interview that celebrity and we'll have some story that we can turn in. Well, having no success, they all decided, hey, let's go down the road. We're going to go to the Oxford Hotel. We're going to have some beer or two, and we're going to just have a chat. And while they're walking, Hal tells the other guys, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to make up a story for tomorrow because we, I need something for my paper. And all the other guys laugh about this. And then as they are sitting there sipping their drinks, John said that instead of turning in four random stories, why don't we create one big whopper and we'll all turn it into our papers together and we'll see what happens. So after another round of beers, they decide uh, that if they made up a story about something domestically, it would be way too easy to check. So why don't we instead make up a story about something that happens abroad? And they're like, what about China? China is really far away. And so John says, all right, here's what happened. Here's the story. We were at the train station, and a number of American engineers stopped in Denver on their way to China. And they told us that the Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall and that they're heading there to bid on the project. Well, Hal, Hal was a bit more sensible. So what does Hal say? Come on. He's like, why in the world would China want to destroy the Great Wall that they have around it? It's like a national monument, right? And after thinking, John said, well, because the Chinese want to do this as a gesture of international goodwill, and they want to open up their borders to foreign trade. So uh, by 11 p.m., and after another round of beers, uh, they had worked out the details of the story, and the next day, all four papers in Denver published this on the front page. The Times headline said, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeks World Trade. Well, lo and behold, uh, everybody believed the story. And soon, it spread to other papers in the United States. And not only that, but then it started spreading to other countries. When the Chinese found out about this story, they were enraged about the idea that Westerners would be coming to destroy their Great Wall. There was a particularly violent secret society who were nicknamed the Boxers, who already were very wary of foreigners anyway, who uh, attacked foreign embassies and murdered hundreds of missionaries. And within two months, 12,000 troops from other countries invaded China to try to protect and save their own people. And this was what was known as the Boxer Rebellion. And it was all because of a crazy hoax of four newspaper men sipping beers at a hotel in Denver. What an example of the power of what our words can do. So James goes on to describe the devastation of the tongue in verses 6 through 8. Think back to the inferno of Peshtigo that we talked about in the beginning. Likewise, in verse 6, James compares the tongue to a spreading fire. 
And after that, he says, the tongue stains the whole body. The word stain here is spilo. It means to defile. He's saying that our tongue has the power to actually defile all of who we are. Matthew 15, 11 puts it this way. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What we say sets the tone of all of who we are. And then he continues to talk about fire here by saying that the tongue sets on fire the entire course of life and is set on, by, set on fire by hell. And we might say, well, what does that mean that it's set on fire by hell? One thing, if you read James and you look at the literature and the philosophies, Hellenistic philosophies of his era, you could tell that he was very intelligent and he was well-versed in Hellenistic philosophies and, and literature. And there was a group back then called Pythagoreanism, which actually had this belief that periodically the entire universe was wiped out by fire, destroyed by fire, and then started again. So maybe he was drawing on that to say about how devastating our tongue can be. And I don't know about you, but as I keep rereading this, as I was going through this passage over and over again, I was rereading, I was rereading, and I'm, and I'm getting through these verses one at a time, and it just like his negative descriptions of our tongue seemed to get heavier and worse, and it just made me more and more frustrated, and it, it made me feel helpless. Like, I mean, if, if this is really how bad our tongues are, then what can we do about it? Is there anything that we can do about it? Look at what it says again in uh, verse 7 and 8. He says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And here what James is probably doing, he's taking us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 where God creates humans and he puts them in dominion over all the earth. They have dominion over the land. They have dominion over the animals. And as people, we have been able to tame any kind of creature that we can think of to some degree. But he says, what about this small muscle in our mouths? Nobody can tame the tongue. And it sounds helpless. It sounds hopeless that we can't do that. right? And then he says that... Uh, it's, uh, what does he say? It's a restless evil. It's a restless evil. And I'm not even going to attempt to say that Greek word because I say it wrong every time and it would sound really funny. So. But the word, the Greek word here for restless is actually the very same word he uses in chapter 1, verse 8. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about somebody who is kind of waffles back and forth, not knowing where they stand with the Lord. And then in verse 8, he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable, the same Greek word that he uses for restless, unstable in all of his ways. So that is the very same word there that is used. And after that, he even goes on to say that it's a deadly poison. And when I think of deadly poisons, think about a venomous snake. How many snake lovers do we have in here? Any? How many people hate snakes? <laughs> But when you, I think of myself in front of a venomous snake, it's even worse. And now he's even saying that the stuff that comes out of our mouth is like poison. It's like poison. And I'm thinking about Psalm 140 here. Psalm 140, 
I'm going to jump there and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Because obviously James is well versed in the Old Testament as well. And he knows that the Old Testament writers often talked about the tongue as being like a serpent or a venomous snake. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. It's so stark that our tongues can be that devastating. So in the last section of James chapter 3 here, in the last section that he's talking, he starts an argument. He's starting to come up with an argument that he can use against the restless, unstable, double-mindedness that he was talking about in chapter 1. He says that from our mouths we bless the Lord and we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. And all people are made in the image of God. They have inherent first and foremost, to God. And whether we like them or not, whether they're believers or not, whether they, we feel like they're our enemies or not, what we say about them, how we talk to people, how we treat people matters. It matters. And the word curse that he's using here, when he says both blessings and curses come from our mouths, it's not are the word we think of when we think of curse. When we think of curse, we think of swearing. But the Greek word here for curse means to doom, to doom. So in essence, it's what we're saying is when we're cursing someone, I'm saying, I want you to be damned. And if you were to die, I want you to go to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. When what does God desire? That all people, 2 Peter 3, right? That all people would come to repentance. And all people would be saved. Shouldn't that be our hearts as well? It really ought to be. And if we are Christ followers, and we claim to be unite, unified with Christ, then how can we praise God in one breath, and then with the very next breath, turn and curse somebody? It, James says, this ought not be so. It should not be a part of us. We cannot be double-minded like that as believers. And he illustrates this well by asking, can a spring give both fresh water and salt water? And then he goes on to say, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? And at first, this seems like, wait a second, James, that analogy doesn't seem to fit because aren't both olives and figs good things? So... But once again, we see here that James is drawing from his knowledge of the literature and philosophies of his day. And there were these Hellenistic philosophies that often used imagery of plants producing according to their own kind. There was a philosopher named, a first century philosopher named Lucius Aeneas Seneca, who wrote this Good does not spring from evil any more than figs grow from olive trees. So you can start to see where James is getting his ideas from. There's also a philosopher, Epictetus, who asks this, how can a vine be moved to act, not like a vine, but like an olive? Or again, an olive to act, not like an olive, but like a vine. He says it is impossible. It's inconceivable. And just like Epictetus's 
That's hard to say. <laughs> question was rhetorical. The answer to his question was no, it can't be. And James's questions are the same. Uh, spring cannot give us both salt and fresh water. An olive cannot become a fig. A fig cannot become an olive. And finally, James has one last phrase. And his last phrase is telling us that a salt pond cannot pour out fresh water. And I believe that this is James' final analogical conclusion to what his argument is here. James is showing us that just like the rider controls the horse, the bit that controls the whole horse, and just like a pilot controls the rudder that controls the entire large ship, there is something that actually controls these small members of our bodies, which actually control so much of our lives. And it's this, that the source of this control is the heart. And the question that we must ask ourselves every day that we look in the mirror, every day that we peer into our hearts is this, what is flowing from our hearts? What is flowing from our hearts? Matthew 12, verse 33 through 37. We have Jesus talking to the Pharisees here. But I believe that some of what he says doesn't apply just to the Pharisees. It also applies to us as well. And this is what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Once again, he's talking to the Pharisees with this, Jesus is using this serpent analogy. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Look again at the second part of verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James, uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can know it? That's what we're born with. We're born with the sin nature, with a heart that desires to set our tongues on fire. But Ephesians 1 reminds us that if you are in Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And furthermore, Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, I'm hopeful that we're building this argument here that it's our heart, which is the well, that is the source of what our tongue says. Uh, in John chapter 7, I love this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this river of living water is really truly the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And that's what ought to be flowing from us. 
Our heart is either a spring of salt water or it's a spring of fresh water. And if I'm a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, we must evaluate our hearts. We must pay attention to what is flowing from it. Is it the sinful desires of the flesh that set our tongues on fire? Or is it, do we rely on the good, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to flow from me like a river of living water controlling what comes out of my mouth? And that's really what our main challenge is for tonight. If you have your handouts, you'll notice on the top, our main challenge is this, is that we must quench our tongues of fire with rivers of living water. And the living water is the Holy Spirit. We must quench our tongues of fire with rivers of living water. So now I'd like to see how we're going to apply what James has taught us. And now we're going to go to Proverbs. I would not turn there in your Bibles because I'm going to give you so many references so quickly that you'd be no way be able to turn to them. But you want your pens ready to go. Now, you don't want your tongues to be on fire, but your pen might be on fire by the time you write all these things down. So um, how many of you heard this phrase? I bet you have. Finish it for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Right. Very good. And, but you know what? That's not true, is it? Actually, we need to flip that phrase because sticks and stones can hurt us, but those wounds will heal. Oftentimes, the wounds that we get from words won't heal even in a lifetime. And so what I want to do with our application is think about how we need to flip the script of our heart. We need to flip this script from being our old nature to the new creations that Christ has made us to be when we put our faith in him. So on the screen, we're going to put uh, these two headings, tongues of fire and living water. We're going to do six things, and I'm going to talk about them very quickly, and I'm going to give you a ton of references. So you might want to just write the references down as we go. Um, and I, what I want to talk about is ways in which we can use our tongues in a destructive manner, but what it looks like to flip that and do it in terms of what the Holy Spirit would want us to do in a biblical way. So number one, we can use our tongues to curse others. We read that in our passage for today. But the flip side would be blessing. I want to give us a couple New Testament passages first. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Something we all need to think about seriously. What about Proverbs? Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. So first of all, may we be found blessing those around us, including our enemies. Number two, we can use our tongues to pridefully boast. We heard that in James 3, 5 tonight. The opposite requires restraint and humility. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Chapter 27, 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Chapter 25, verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. 
So may we rely on the Holy Spirit to hold us in check, to bridle us and humble us. Number three, we can use our tongues to discourage and harshly criticize. When we flip that, we encourage. We build people up. I love what it says in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Chapter 16, verse 24. I read, oh, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So let's be known for our encouragement. Number four, we can use our tongues to gossip and slander. Flip that to either silence, holding our tongue, or giving praise. You either want to hold our tongues or we want to praise. Proverbs 16, verse 28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Chapter 17, 9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Chapter 20, verse 19, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. Chapter eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. And finally, chapter 26, verse 20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So let's build the trust of those around us, especially our friends, by not talking about others in negative ways or sharing things that we shouldn't be sharing. Number five, we can use our tongues to lie and flatter. But instead, we must use our tongues to share truth. Proverbs 26, verse 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Chapter 29, verse 5, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Chapter 12, verse 17 through 19, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in the most graceful and loving ways to be truthful and to share truth. And number six, last one. We can use our tongues for foolish, vulgar, and inappropriate speech. If we flip that, our speech needs to be wise and righteous. Proverbs 10 verse 8 tells us, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Chapter 14 verse 3, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Chapter 18, verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Chapter 19, verse 1, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Chapter 10, verse 31 through 32, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. 
The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So let's remember what we already heard in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. And these are actually only a few passages. Seemed like a lot. But there is a lot in Proverbs that can teach us about what comes out of our mouths and what we have to say. I would really encourage you to do a study throughout the Proverbs to find all of the passages that talk about our speech. So in conclusion, I want us to think about the wisdom of this old phrase, because I bet you know this phrase too. And I bet some of you have heard it many times. Finish this one. If you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all. And I think God's word helps us to understand that there is a time for, to be silent. Ecclesiastes 3.7 tells us that there's a time for silence, there's a time to speak. And Proverbs has something to say about this as well. Chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I think we have seen many uh, shows, perhaps, or movies where there's a police officer who's arresting somebody, and then you hear them giving that person the Miranda rights, correct? Where it's like, uh, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Well, I thought it would be fun to create a biblical Miranda rights. So I did. And uh, hopefully these will remind us to really think about our hearts, think about what flows from us, think about when it's time to keep our mouths shut. Um, and so we're going to put these on the screen, and they go like this. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you before the throne. You have the right to only use wise, pure, positive, uplifting speech. If you can't afford to only use such speech, discipline will be provided for you. You can look up Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 yourself, because it says God disciplines those he loves. And do you understand the rights I have just read to you? And with these rights in mind, do you wish to surrender to the Holy Spirit's leading? Now, I have little copies of that back on the coffee bar if you want one to put on your refrigerator or next to your bed or one on your mirror or just like, but we need these reminders. We need these reminders. It's so easy to fall into the things of this world. So I want to share just a couple more Proverbs to put a nice exclamation point on what we learned from James tonight. Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And then the first part of chapter 10, verse 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. What's flowing from my heart? What's flowing from your heart? The only way to quench the destructive flames of the tongue are to allow the Holy Spirit to flow from our hearts as we live the righteous life, lives that he has called us to live. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, whew, James has challenged us tonight. It was hard to hear the kind of power and control, just something so small like our tongues can have in our lives. I pray that as we Search our hearts, God, that we understand that it's not our tongue itself that controls itself or us, that there's a source, and the source flows from our hearts. 
God, if we're believers, I ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to just flow from us like living water, that whatever comes from us is uplifting, it's righteous, it's wise, it's good, and it's uh, something that, uh, that actually then influences and guides our whole lives moving forward. We just thank you, God, for your word. It's so powerful. May we take it, may we be impacted by it, and may it cause us to live the way that you have desired and created us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.